Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, I guys didn't. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talked to historian Lucy Jane Santos about radium. I was put in touch with Lucy because we happened to share a literary agent and Lucy was about to release her new book called Half-Lives, the unlikely history of radium. Lucy is an expert in the history of 20th century leisure and in her own words has an obsession for the cultural history of radioactivity. So I was totally delighted when our agent Laura put us in touch to record this episode about radium. This episode was recorded a few weeks ago during the UK coronavirus lockdown and of course, we had the usual dramas, which by now will be familiar to all of us, associated with online video conferencing software. I can hear you. My, everything seems to have gone weird with my computer. But we eventually ironed out all of the technical difficulties and I started by asking Lucy how she first got interested in radium. I'm a historian and I predominantly focus on the 20th century and I'm particularly interested in everyday life, especially where science intersects with it. So um, I like to focus on how ordinary people understand science, um, deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis and actually and definitely in the case of radium, when they buy it as well. Um, I have written a book uh, which is called Half-Lives, uh, which will be published by Icon Books in July 2020. And it tells a rather surprising aspect of the radioactive element radium. So what is radium? So radium is a, is, as I said, it's a radio, radioactive element um, that was first isolated and discovered by Marie Curie in 1898. Oh. <laughs> I say 1898 and I pretend that I've 
very confident with that, but I'm sure my head will pop and say 1897 or something. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was 1898 that she um, discovered that there was something going on in a substance known as pitch blend, which couldn't be described, um, couldn't be uh, explained by the, the uranium that it contained. And at that point, uranium had recently been identified as one of the first radioactive elements. Ah, so radioactivity wasn't even really known about until Marie Curie's work or just before? It was just before and it had been discovered that certain substances, certain minerals gave off um, invisible rays by Henri Becquerel. And Henri Becquerel uh, worked at the Natural History Museum in Paris and he was really interested in minerals and he was particularly interested in the ones that sort of glowed. And some of these fluoresced, which means that when the light turned off, the glowing stopped. And others were known to phosphoresce, which meant that the glowing would continue for a short period of time after the external light had been removed. And uh, Becquerel had found that uranium gave off what was known at the time as Becquerel rays. And Marie Curie, when she took up Becquerel's research a few months later, after he sort of lost interest in it, um, called this radioactivity. So she actually designated the name for this uh, new phenomenon that had just been witnessed. Ah, yeah. Do you know what? In one of my more nerdy moments, I think I might have downloaded Marie Curie's PhD thesis where she uh, where she actually coined the term radioactivity. Yeah, and it's remarkable that she was a PhD student when she started uh, this. Well, she actually started this research to start her PhD. She was looking for something that hadn't been really looked at before. And mm. Becquerel had found it, but he had lost interest. And one of the reasons he he'd lost interest is because a few years earlier, x-rays had been discovered and x-rays were much more interesting. They could be, you could use them to look inside the human body. They were quite sexy at the time. Mm. The fact that cold lumps of rock gave off rays was interesting, but really paled in comparison. Until Marie Curie did her research on it, I guess. Yes. And one of the things that she did that differentiated herself was that Becquerel was studying these rays using photography. Uh, like many scientists of his day, he was fascinated by this relatively new uh, process of photography. So he he was using photographic plates to uh, identify and show that these uh, minerals were giving off rays, whereas Marie Curie was much more interested in the electrical effects. So she used a different process um, using an electrometer, which was designed by Pierre Curie, her husband. And she was looking at the electrical effects that were given off by these uh, invisible rays. Ah, okay. So what were her big discoveries then? She was looking at the different mineral, different mineral substances, and she was particularly interested in a substance called pitch blend, which she showed actually gave off four times the amount of these invisible rays, radioactivity, than could be explained by the amount of uranium that was known uh, that it was known to contain. Mm. So what she did was a really complex process called fractional crystallization, um, which is 
employing various chemical procedures to separate the different substances from pitch blend. And pitch blend is really complex and uh, impure, and it has about 30, we know now, it has 30 different elements in it. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> which, again, wasn't really known at the time. It, it was known that it had lots of stuff in it, but nobody had been that interested in finding out what it was. So she uh, took some pitch blend and she ground and dissolved and boiled and stirred, filtered, poured and cooled until the natural end point of the process, which is she ended up with solid forms of the different chemical compounds. And then she tested these, each of these for radioactivity. Again, huge, long process. It took tons and tons of pitch blend, loads and loads of years of work. I think it was four years of work and eight tons of pitch blend before she got the most minute amount of radium chloride, which is a salt. And she was able to test that and prove that this was a new element. She'd also found that it, the pitch blend contained polonium. Oh, yeah, that was the other element that she discovered, right? Named after her home country of Poland. Exactly. And it's, again, I, I like to think how remarkable it was. And you mentioned about her PhD. This was a woman studying for her PhD, and she came up with two elements. So I mean, it's a remarkable achievement. And the work that she did to come up with these elements was absolutely magnificent. It's... It has become a legend, and but the amount of uh, boiling and filtering and cooling she did with these processes, these are vast vats of stinky, smelly materials. <laughs> and she was, I mean, some of it's slightly legend. She did work with a chemical company quite soon in the process to come up with um, an easier way of doing it. And part of this is legend um, that she actually cultivated herself, the idea of her uh, wiping her sweaty brow and standing over cauldrons with big <laughs> sticks. I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of that, but it has been overemphasised, I think. Um, but again, it's a, it was a remarkable achievement. Definitely. And not only was it a remarkable achievement, the fact that she discovered these two chemical elements as a mere PhD student, but her work led to quite a kind of personal sacrifice as well, right? Like, I think a lot of people are familiar with this story that because she was working with these radioactive substances, her health at the time and later on in life was really quite impacted. Interestingly enough, uh, when Marie Curie's body was exhumed in 1995, because um, when she had died in 1934, she had been buried in a very small cemetery, but France decided they wanted to honour her. So uh, the Curies were exhumed in 95, as I said, and they were moved to the Pantheon in Paris which is a huge honour, and um, Marie Curie is the only woman that had been buried there um, for her own merits. But when they uh, exhumed the bodies, uh, they were a bit nervous about how much radiation would be ex the workers would be exposed to. So um, in Marie's case, they uh, put a little hole in the coffin, and she'd been buried in a lead-lined coffin that had been sort of sandwiched in between two other wooden coffins. Um, and they put a borehole in and measured the radioactive content, the radon content, the gas that was in her coffin. And they actually found that it was very small amounts. 
And it hasn't been proven, but one of the theories is, is that it wasn't actually the radioactivity that she uh, encountered through her work with radium that had killed her, that had led to her um, having a, a plastic anemia um, and dying in 1934. But it was actually her work with x-rays during the First World War. Um, and again, this is quite a well-known story, but not necessarily understood how dangerous the work with x-rays was but her and her daughter um, actually set up mobile x-ray units which were sent to the uh, the front in france um in, during the war and they helped um helped uh, wounded soldiers uh, the doctors extract bullets check for broken bones and um, so there's a really fascinating story of the work they did with x-rays during the war as well as her work with radium so basically she was exposed to a lot of radioactivity a lot of radiations during her working life yeah definitely um but what was it about radium that really caught your attention as a historian and that made you want to write a book about it um, so I've been the executive secretary for the British Society for the History of Science for over 10 years now. And through my work with those, I was quite, I did, we do a lot of work on the scientists. So the discoveries they made, the lives they lead, that type of thing. And mm. when I first started up researching radium, what I was really intrigued about was not the scientists themselves. Although I talk about Marie Curie for days, <laughs> it was the other people that I was interested in. Um, and I was really interested when I found out that there were products that you could buy on high, in the high street in places like Boots the Chemist that were deliberately made radioactive and were sold on the basis of their radioactive properties. And the thing that I got really interested in was why, who would buy these and what were they said to do? Um, obviously, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that this isn't a good thing. Mm. But I was really intrigued to find out exactly the thought processes behind the people that made them and the people that bought them. When were those products being sold? From about 1903. So as I said, radium is discovered in 19, sorry, 1898. Mm-hmm. Marie Curie first isolates it, first definitively proves that it exists in 1902. But by 1903, you could go into shops and buy products. So one of the first products you could buy was a little scientific instrument called the spintharoscope. And that was used to show um, the alpha radiations themselves. So you could you could look through this, and it, it's a little bit like a kaleidoscope. So you look through one end of it, and there's a screen at the other. It's only like two inches long. And there's this tiny source of radium in them. And you can see the alpha rays bombarding against the screen. Oh, and, wow. And each one of those sparks, each one of those scintillations is a little glowing dot. And this is an early form of, of a Geiger counter, and it was set up by, so uh, it was invented by Sir William Crookes, who is a huge name in science, a very serious scientist. Um, but what really captured my attention was he started producing them in mid-1903, but by December 1903, these were being uh, touted as the must-have Christmas gift for the fashionable woman. <laughs> and the idea that a scientific instrument could be developed and then it uh, just it just fascinated me. And uh, 
the must-have gift was a little gold gold case uh, with velvet lining. It was beautiful, but it was still a scientific instrument. And so that was one of the first products that came. And after that, everyone wanted a piece of it. So you get radium as entertainment. So radium in the theatre but you also get products that start focusing on its medical properties as well and what it could do for the human body. So was it the sort of the story of kind of the the rise of radium and then the slow realisation of its dangers that really attracted you to it as a substance? Yes, it was. So as I said, one of the first things that I found interesting was that you could go and buy it in a, in a shop and that was just fascinating and also the idea that it was in such mundane shops as well like Boots the Chemist for instance but it was also in Harrods and Selfridges and the idea that something that we now think of as so dangerous so toxic so I'm going to have to leave my house because radon has been discovered in it the idea that you would just walk into Harrods uh, hairdressing salon and ask for the latest radium hair tonic is just fascinating and it is the contrast between these two things we are so scared of it now whereas they seem to have wanted so much of it you know they couldn't (laughs) there was so much demand for it that it was the most expensive substance in the world manufacturers could not keep up with it um to own your own radium was a, a sign of social prestige whereas now the idea that I, I mean, I have a small collection of radioactive items, and the idea that I have that terrifies so many people. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happened then in between then and now? Right from the beginning, I think there was always the understanding that scientists were getting hurt by this. But there was an understanding also that maybe they just didn't know exactly how to use it. And if they got better, if they had better systems, better processes, we would be able to control this this force. Mm. So there's this idea that there's this lingering trust and that doesn't go away for a very long time. In terms of consumer items, By 1927, there is an understanding that people are dying from working with it. And these people are not the scientists, they're not the medics, which, not being callous, was kind of seen as them being martyrs. Mm. They were dying, they were suffering for the greater good of science. But there was this group of women in particular who started dying in the late 1920s. And these are, it's a very well-known story, but these are the radium dial painters. And their jobs were to um, paint glow-in-the-dark paint onto watch faces and other products to make them glow-in-the-dark. Because in the uh, 1920s in particular, glow-in-the-dark products made by radium paint were huge business very popular, uh, especially watches. And you first start getting this in the First World War, because obviously trench warfare is particularly suited to the idea that you could have a glow-in-the-dark watch for synchronised movements, to know what time it was. You don't want to be lighting a match to see what time it is when you're in a trench. Mm. So it starts becoming really, really popular. And then after the war ends... There's, it becomes fashionable to have your glow-in-the-dark watch. It's a signal of modernity. And these glow-in-the-dark paints were made with radium. And as I said, 
there was obviously a whole group of people whose jobs it was to paint them. And so by the late 1920s, people started dying. These women started dying because one of the ways they painted them was to uh, lick their paintbrush. And you licked your paintbrush and then dipped it in the radium paint, and then you got a really fine point. So you could paint quicker, more accurately, um, and just neatly in general. And there was one company in particular called uh, US Radium Corporation that produced a product called Undark, which was this wonderful glow-in-the-dark paint that was used in uh, watches, locks, switches, house numbers, anything that you wanted to glow in the dark, you were encouraged to buy the paint and you could put it on yourself as well. So although you had these women in these mass factories producing watches and dials, you also were encouraged to buy it, take it home, paint your entire house with glow in the dark materials as well. even like uh, there's some automobiles, those Lincoln cars were sold with the idea that they had glow in the dark gasoline gauges as well. Um, there's also these wonderful stories. I, I say wonderful, but not really wonderful when you think about it, of drunk men coming home and having painted their uh, house, their door locks with radioactive paint so they can see easily to get into the house as well. <laughs> and it's it's brilliant. Um there's there's it's brilliant but terrifying. There's there's teddy bears that have glow in the dark radium eyes. Oh and, god, that and, sounds horrifying. <laughs> but it's horrifying, but they're sold to comfort your child so your child doesn't have to wake up in the middle of the night and it's a dark room because there's their trusted teddy bear with the glow in the dark eyes staring at it. It's terrifying to me for so many reasons. <laughs> but these were really, really popular things. So then for for two or so decades, everything around us became glow in the dark. But people started realising that it wasn't as desirable, perhaps, as they initially thought. When the women in the dial painting factories started dying of radiation poisoning and and it was accepted after much fighting on the the parts of the uh, manufacturers that this is what was happening, it did take the the glow out of the products in a sense. People became slightly less interested in uh, glow in the dark. Uh, But one of the things I really thought when I came into this into this research was that that would probably stop the industry dead you know the idea that I I don't have the amount of people that actually died but it was a lot of women died the idea that you would still carry on with an industry after that many deaths was actually mind-blowing there was also in the early 1930s a man called Eben Byers who had been prescribed a radium water so this is radium salts dissolved into ordinary water by his doctor and you're meant to take one a day and that was considered to be the safe amount he actually took three a day for several years and died and he died horrendously in a similar way to many of these radium radium girls as they were called so radium inside the body rots it and he had a lot inside his body so he had jaw splinters he lost a huge amount of weight he had holes in his skull from the damage and and uh, yeah he so he died in 1932 and again i had assumed 
the, the combination of women dying painting watch dials and a really quite high profile death of a of a billionaire even Baez was a, a president of a huge steel company he was an international playboy he was a well-known man I had assumed that this would have stopped the industry but this is 1933 and my research has shown that these products actually remained quite popular until at least the 1960s and it's about the 1960s that the companies stopped producing radium products. How? How? How how was that allowed to continue? I think there's a certain amount of lingering belief that we just still haven't conquered this beast. I, I talked earlier about how the scientists considered themselves martyrs and okay we lost a finger or we lost my arm or something like that but this is for the greater good i genuinely believe that a lot of these producers of these radium uh, products and this is things like um there's something called the radium o radium hat pad so it's a little um little uh, silk pad stuffed with radioactive ore that you put on your head and it's not clear how you keep it on there, but you put your hat over it and it's described as something that you can wear all day because obviously you're wearing a hat all day. So whenever you've got your hat on, your head is getting bombarded with radioactive rays, which is said to uh, stimulate hair growth. Oh, my God. So it's things like that. But I genuinely believe that these these people actually believed that their products were working they just needed to understand them better they didn't know how they worked or maybe if they just changed the amount of radioactive materials in them tweaked the recipe you know uh, tweaked the exposure time maybe you wouldn't wear your radium hat pad all day maybe you should just wear it two hours a day there's this lingering there's this lingering feeling that they just didn't understand and they needed to understand. And once they understood how it worked and could control it, that the answers to humanity's crises would be solved. They would cure cancer. They would be eternally youthful because one of the huge selling products for radium was that it somehow stimulated beauty. And if you used, uh, for instance, radio uh, cosmetics or radial toiletries, you would never get old. It would prevent wrinkles. Um, it would keep the first flush of youth. Um, there's a Caradium hair restorer that would restore your hair back to its original colour. And they were very clear it wouldn't dye your hair, but somehow magically it would stimulate your natural colour to come out. Um, even if you were totally grey, it would it would magically change your hair colour back to to your youthful one. It's 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 fascinating. It is, yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of kind of mysticism and mystery surrounding it. Um which it sounds like is because we still didn't really understand it even scientifically. So at what point then did we finally understand it? I don't think radium and radioactivity has ever totally been understood. At least not at least not across the board. Again, one of the really surprising things that I've discovered is even even though I said earlier that on the whole radium products stopped around the 1960s, that's not actually true. You can still buy these products today. You can still go to, as I have, you can go to a town in the Czech Republic and have a radium bath. 
and it, yeah, and it's a it's a place called the Radium Palace Hotel in a town called Yakimov, um, which is uh, a couple of hours from Prague. And it's an amazing town because you can go into, I think there's about 14 hotels there, and the majority of them will let you go in and have radium baths. And the way they get their radium water is because this is the town where Marie Curie got her pitch blend from. So when I first started talking, I said Marie Curie isolated radium from pitch blend, and this came from the mountains of Yakimov, which at the time was known as uh, St. Giacomal. And this you know this is the birthplace of radium and you can still go there today and have a radon bath and you can go to other places there's a place called bad gastein in austria again i've been to it you have your radium bath or you can go into their tunnels so you can go to a tunnel there there's there's a train that goes deep into the mine and then you sit there and just breathe in the radioactive air for 40 minutes and then come out again. And people do that. Um, it's, it's a fascinating industry. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But where does regulation come into all of this, though? Are there no sort of, you know, universal laws that protect people from radiation? There's the idea that you shouldn't have a lot of radioactivity in your life. So there is the linear non-threshold model of radiation, which means that ideally we have no access to radiations. Um, that is not not really possible um we live where you live will depend on how much radioactive radioactivity you're exposed to for instance places like in cornwall cornwall again has huge amounts of uh radioactive ore in the ground so there are regulations that give best practices and there is the idea that you should limit the amount of access to radioactivity but that's not accepted across the board either as well. So the idea that you could control the amount of radioactivity you're exposed to in a city like Yakimov in the first place is quite difficult. 
there are also cultural differences in terms of how much radioactivity is preferable. Um, and certainly in countries like Czech Republic and Austria, they have a lot of a different opinion in terms of how much radioactivity there is. The idea that you could come to a, a, a spa town in England and have a radioactive bath is completely unbelievable. Even though at the same time that St. Uh, St. in uh, Czech Republic was touting itself as a radioactive spa, and this is from about 1910-1912, Bath and Buxton in Britain also said they were radioactive spas. So you've got these two different trajectories. So Bath and Buxton drop their claims of radioactivity as it becomes more widely understood that radioactivity isn't the best thing to expose yourself to. But countries like Czech Republic and Austria, towns in these places are still touting themselves as radioactive spas. And again, it's a very different cultural message that you get, that you're exposed to in, in different in different places. Here we have a, a, a zero tolerance attitude. But again, in places like Czech Republic and Austria, they have a much, a lot of people have a lot more relaxed understanding. Um, even in America and Japan, you also still get these radioactive spas and um, radioactive caves, radon caves, where you can go in and breathe in the radioactive air. They're few and far between, especially in North America. But um, they're still there. There's still traces of this culture and people still swear by it. I suppose... Regardless of what you've described about the sort of the different cultural aspects, it's not a cut and dry thing, is it, that radioactivity is bad because we use it in medical treatments to make people better? Yeah, it's it's always been something that people have understood to be almost a double-edged sword, I think. Yes. There's a very much of an understanding that you can go into a serious hospital now and you can get your radiotherapy and it's something to do with radiations. It's something to do with this long history that, that we, we've talked about. But how that actually works is, is less known and I think it's sort of shrouded in a little bit of mystery for a lot of people. We know radioactivity is bad, but at the same time, we know that, that, that for some people it is the last, it is a salvation as well. And I think it's really difficult to, to understand these two things at the same time. And I think it leads, it leads the door open for people to claim that radiation is, is, is beneficial to you. So in terms of there's still the idea that something called radio, radiation hormosis, the idea that a small amount of radiation is good for you, which is where these spa towns of Yakimov and um, Badgastein are selling their products. A little bit of radiation which you can get naturally from the waters is good for you. And a lot of radiation from these artificial isotopes is also good for you. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult... It's a difficult subject to get a lot of sense out of, I think, and because it's so emotive as well. We fundamentally know that radiation is something to do with atomic, which is something to do with nuclear bombs. Mm. You know, we fundamentally know that we should be scared of it. Uh, it's, it's a story full of twists and turns. The promise of radiation is something that we still think about as well. What if it does work? What if it is the secret that unlocks the cures to cancer, the, the everything that, we, that keeps us up at night? 
Are there any other stories from your book that you can share? I'm specifically thinking about the way that we've manipulated radium and you mentioned the painting processes, incorporating it into paints to make glow-in-the-dark things. Um, Are there any other kind of processes? Can you melt it or, you know, can you cast it into objects? How have we made with it over the years? The substance that I talk about is the radium salts, the radium chlorides and and bromides. So it's, it's the the dusty table salt type of thing. Um, Mary Curie in, I think it was 1910 or 1911, actually uh, made radium the metal, but it's not actually very useful for anything. As soon as it's exposed to air, it blackens and tarnishes and just looks like a... (sighs) rusty old uh, piece of metal so it was never actually particularly used for anything i mean uranium just going slightly outside of my of my uh main topic of interest is something that has also been used quite extensively so uranium is a heavy metal it's a it's it's toxic so again it's quite like radium it started being used in in medicine but uranium was also used in the 19th century by glassmakers. So they found a way of making beautifully coloured glass by adding uranium salts to a molten glass mixture. And this concoction gave vases and decorative glassware a range of colours. And it also led to this uh, product called Vaseline glass, which you can often see in antique shops Um and I love it. It glows in the dark under under UV light, and it glows with this beautiful greeny. Uh, it's it's a greenish glow, and it's highly collectible. And it was named because it actually resembles the famous brand of petroleum jelly. So it was named after Vaseline, and it was really popular in the. 1920s you see a lot of sort of art deco cocktail shakers and glasses Mm. and beautiful beautiful things and it kind of stopped being used by the 1940s but that's again a way that a radioactive element was used to produce something of great beauty and something uh, quite collectible as well um i dream of having my own room of uh, vaseline glass uh, products they are just gorgeous and so again that's another way that these substances were were utilised and made. Mm, yeah, and adopted by craftspeople. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the biggest centre for this was this town of Yakimov. Um, so again, Yakimov keeps coming back into my history because it's it's such the centre for everything. It's where uranium was first discovered. It's what the it was uh, where pitch blend, a substance that Marie Curie used to to isolate radium came from and it's where you can still go today and have your radioactive baths if you want to of course <laughs> it's not compulsory I, I find it fascinating um the experience of having a radium bath was actually really core to my understanding of of the products themselves because it's a it's a really unique feeling it Bathing in radium water is not the same as bathing in normal water. It's really, you can feel the minerals. It's a really rich, dense experience. And you can feel little bubbles popping on your skin as well. It's, it's, 
it's really interesting. Wow, that's serious commitment to the cause, Lucy. <laughs> the first time I went was interest. The second time is a commitment to the cause, I think. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but, but how, you know, I'm so lucky that I can pick up a random subject to to study, but also it's one that hasn't completely gone away. It's not completely historical. We can still experience it. You can still go into the places where you're reading about. So the Radium Palace in Yakimov was uh, built in 1912 it is still there it is still pretty much the same they had a big um refurb a couple of years ago but it's pretty similar you can understand how people felt there you can kind of experience it and i'm very much into the history that you can touch so i love collecting the products but i also love going to the places as well yeah gosh what a rich seam of research that you've managed to tap into it has it continually surprises me and even i don't know how many years into it i'm still discovering new products on a scarily daily basis even as i'm submitting my final edits to my publishers <laughs> finding new <laughs> things it is yes it's huge subject i was going to ask you a question about the future of radium but it sounds like it it's still going to enjoy quite a prominent sort of place in our lives even even with our sort of fear of it one of the points about radium is it will these products will last forever as well i mean radium has a half-life of 1600 years so any of these products that genuinely contained radium and many of them genuinely did Mm. um and that's a point i haven't really picked up on it was all it was often understood that these were fake products but actually no they many of them do contain these quite low levels but low levels of radioactive materials nonetheless and these products are still there they're still in people's houses and basements and i find that slight edge of terror fascinating Mm. because every so often you hear of a museum that's gone into their basement and found a a radium emanator which is a device that has a little bit of radioactive material in it that you pour normal water in and the radium infuses the water so you get beautiful radioactive water and there's there were hundreds of them hundreds of types thousands sold and every so often you go to you find out that a museum has found one of them panicked <laughs> and had to had it disposed of and destroyed i mean the science museum for instance has a beautiful selection of radioactive materials radioactive products like these water emanators but they won't let you go anywhere near them you have to sort of stand six feet away from them as they stand over you with a geiger counter <laughs> type thing to protect you we are so scared of these things that were in everyday life that were found under people's beds after they died mm. <laughs> are you scared of radium I would be scared of it in a huge in huge amounts. Um, it's definitely something that I've had to think about in terms of my research. Um, I certainly haven't built up a huge collection of very very radioactive uh, products on that basis. I I wouldn't want to live with um, box loads of radioactive materials around me, but. In, on the whole, I so I went to the Radium Palace. I've had a few radium baths. I wouldn't have done that if I would have really thought that was a serious risk to my health. Mm. But I wouldn't encourage it, and I wouldn't do it on a you know monthly basis or anything like that. But you know, I guess we all do certain things that are a little bit dangerous. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for sharing some of your radium stories with me, Lucy. It's been so fascinating to hear about the rich history of this amazing material. Um, and I've learned so much through through our conversation. And have you got a website or social media where people can keep up to date with what you're up to? Yeah, I've got uh, my website is lucyjanesantos.com and it has all my socials on it as well. And I'm also just setting up something that I'm provisionally calling the Museum of Radium, which is basically going to be all of my pictures of all my collections, stories that haven't made it into the book and anything of interest that I can find. And that's museumofradium.co.uk. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So that was the supremely knowledgeable Lucy Jane Santos on Radium. And just as a reminder, again, her book called Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium is out now in all good bookshops and places online that pay their taxes and aren't evil corporations. So that's all for this episode of Handmade. As always, I would be extremely grateful if you are enjoying the podcast and you would like to rate and review it in all the places that you can rate and review podcasts. I'd like to say thanks to Dave Shepard for our marvellous new cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time, I'm going to be talking to artist Jennifer Crouch about fibres, weaving and phantoms. So until then, thanks for listening and I look forward to seeing you next time on Handmade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.